Here is the reading from the Nicene Creed. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. This is perhaps some of the most beautiful prose that has ever been written. I find it fascinating and, and just enthralling. It's in addition to the Apostles' Creed that we have, uh, we, we've recited several times that, believe, that says we believe that Jesus Christ is the only Son of God and our Lord. Now, why was it added to? Why was more put in there? Well, it's because arguments against the deity of Jesus or qualifying the deity of Jesus, as one man once told me, he said, Jesus is mighty God, but not almighty God, and he was in error, but that's that idea of qualifying where he stands, those arguments were dividing the early church. There was a speaker named Arius, a bishop, and we'll talk about him in some detail here in a bit. He was a driving force behind the group that believed that Jesus was created by God and the first among all creation and the greatest among all creation, but still created. And that push, I, I need to stress here, that push was not meant to demote Jesus. It was pushed because those pushing it were struggling to define and denote the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In fact, when I was a boy, I used to think that was the ranking because we always said Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We never said Holy Spirit and Son and Father. I thought, well, that must be the ranking of it then. I, it's the pain of growing up in military family, I guess. You always look for the ranks. And these people, they were looking for this. And, and add to this something we rarely mention, but it needs to be said. The Bible does not lay out theology the way we wish it did. There is not a book entitled, These are the Facts You Need to Know About God, and listing them in a certain order of, of importance, perhaps, but at least we'd have it there in packable form. No, we know an awful lot about God because we examine the stories, and we glean from here, and we glean from there, and while we get a very powerful and useful picture of our deity, our God, there is a lot, and capitalize the word lot and circle it and point arrows to it. There is a lot of room for wonder and awe and mystery and argument. Well, the problem with having argument in there, along with the mystery and the wonder and the awe, is what do you do to maintain the cohesiveness of the group? Those in the group. We're speaking today primarily of the bishops, the leaders of the, the city churches and the area churches. We're very interested in getting these differences nailed down so that Christians had a cohesive, co uh, consistent, easy to understand, transportable doctrine. Let me explain that again. The reason there were the, uh, the Apostles' Creed was written and the reason the Nicene Creed was, uh, was written was because people did not have Bibles. People did not have access to literature and, and libraries full of theological and philosophical and doctrinal tomes. They, they didn't have books. And many of them could not read. And although there's a big fight about what the level of literacy was, the fact is quite most people didn't read. 
That's, they didn't have the time, the leisure, or the schooling for it. So they had to memorize what their faith was so that they could transport it. They could, they could move around with them. Even through the medieval ages, when you saw a Bible, it was chained, literally, to a pulpit. It was not movable. You didn't have access. So how are we going to get this group to know what it believes as it journeys? Now, emperors and their functionaries weren't all that interested in what they decided, but they also wanted the church to decide, all right, who are you? Define who you are. There were, there were arguments. There were arguments even about the number of gods and what books were written by or about which one. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago, Marcion believed in a bad Jewish God and a good Christian God that didn't agree with each other and therefore they had different books. Well, as Jesus is a very unique personage and he's a unique event as well in human history, it should come as no surprise that there were many, many arguments about exactly who Jesus was and exactly what he was. One of those arguments came to a head in the person of, as mentioned, Arius, who lived from 270 to 336 in Alexandria. He was one of the most powerful and influential priests in that major city. He was a wise man and a good man. Even though I believe he was wrong in what he put out there, I have nothing that I can find in history that indicates he was a bad person. He truly believed in studying scripture that he had come to the right conclusion. He wrote a book called The Banquet or Thalia. It has not uh, survived except in fragments. But we know a lot about it because of all the people that wrote against it. And they quoted against it. Sometimes you don't get the original document. But what you get is a picture of it you can form by all the people that are against it. Arius believed that Jesus as the son of God, he believed he was the son of God, did not have the same nature as God. He said Jesus was a created being, even though he was first and foremost among all created beings. And while the son created all things and is Lord of all things, Arius said that being begotten meant there was a time when the son did not exist. There was a time where Jesus did not exist. Now, Arius used proof texting as a, as a way to prove that point. If you don't know what proof texting is, it means that you find verses that back up what you believe, and you bring those out. I don't know how many times I have had my Bible open over tables where I've read something to somebody, and they're going, yeah, but, and then they'll start showing me their verse. And it's almost like scripture wars across the table. Well, here's the thing. Proof texting, gleaning of verses from here to there, that's not a good way to make an argument. It's a good way to pick a story and, and to set up an argument. <clears throat> no question there. But the problem is we, we take them out of context. We'll take a verse that was written to Corinth and a verse that was written to Ephesus and a verse that was written to Philippians or the Philippi, uh, church in Philippi, and then we put them all together as if they were one cohesive unit. But please remember, a text without a context is a pretext. It is out and is not. For example, here are three quotes. And Judas went out and hung himself. Go do thou likewise, and what thou doest, do quickly. 
Well, there you go. Now, I hope nobody here uh, will accept those three verses out of context put together to make a decision for your life. No. But that's what can happen with proof texting. And I'm not slamming Arius for this because anybody who works with Scripture, including perhaps especially myself, has been guilty of this. And that's why it's good to have the community to point it out and say, Patrick, let's look at this. Arius went to um, passages such as Romans 8.29 and John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Now remember in most versions it says one and only begotten son. And begotten indicates a... um, a pregnancy and birth, it, it, a seed into reality. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then Romans eight twenty nine, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to be the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn, the son is the firstborn among many brothers. And so he took these verses to mean Jesus is above all things. He is Lord. He is son of God. But he was created, Arius said, and therefore not divine in the exact same sense that the Father is divine. The argument is a natural one. If you remember, Nicodemus had a hard time with the concept of you must be born again, and who doesn't, if you've not heard that before? That puts all kinds of things in your head. You're going, well, that's, that's impossible. But we have used the expression born again now for 2,000 years, so we don't have a shock factor when we hear it. But Nicodemus struggled with it. Jesus, the very fact that Jesus happened, I know it's a weird way to phrase it, but think about it. The very fact that Jesus happened brings new concepts into play, new things we have to wrap our heads around. This argument that Arius made, while natural, brought great division to the faith. The argument would also help decide which books made it into our Bibles as that had not yet been settled, although, if we're being honest, by 325 in the time of Nicaea, it was pretty much settled. There were a few things still in the air there, some books that were still questionable, in or out, but it was, it was 95% of the way there, I said, to make up a number. Uh, it, you always be aware of that, because 76.3% of all statistics are made up on the spot. But it, it was the majority were there. There were questions about the book of Revelation, the shepherd of Hermas, the gospel of Peter. Some books, but not most. That said, had Arius won the battle, we most likely would not have had Hebrews in our Bible. Or First John in our Bible. And it would have caused some issues with some other books. Now, please remember, Arius said that God was perfect and without sin. But he said, that's the problem. As he is perfect and without sin, he could not enter the world. His perfection, his holiness cannot enter the world of sin. Therefore, he created Jesus. And Jesus, according to Arius, please understand, I'm quoting Arius. Uh, Not quoting, I'm summarizing Arius. Jesus had the personality and the purity of God, but he was separate from God so he could unite with mankind. And let's be honest, had we not been schooled in Trinity studies through our lifetime, this would have made perfect sense. And we would have nodded and most likely gone along with him. Arius was, um, was safe 
until he started teaching this. He started teaching it as an apologetic, actually. Now, when I was a kid, the word apologetics offended me somewhat. I was told that the defense of the existence of God was called apologetics. And I was thinking, we don't have anything to apologize for. But that's not what it means. It means to give an answer. When people have a question, we give an answer. Arius was defending Christianity in a very Hellenistic Greek logic world. You know, Socrates, Plato, that sort of world where everything, you know, Marcus Aurelius, everything has to be di uh, dissected and looked at and all lines of thought run through their, their, to their conclusion. That was their... He correctly said that we are taught to worship Jesus and pray to him. And if he were a creature, even a perfect creature, we're, we're not allowed to worship a perfect creature. Now, he was correct. If you remember, angels refused to let you bow down and worship to them. Jesus accepted that worship and, in fact, insisted upon it. Constantine, the Roman emperor, saw this as a serious problem. If not resolved, this could splinter Christianity, and he needed it unified, not because he was a great Christian. He didn't accept. He made Christianity legal long before it became the official religion of Rome, and he did not accept Christianity except, and I don't want to be judgmental here, but it seems historically it was a token acceptance near his death. When he knew he was dying, I think he was placing his bets on the roulette wheel the best he could at that stage. But Christianity was important to him because it was spreading, it was powerful. These people were different and they were valuable. I've met atheists, not, not all atheists will say this, but I've met atheists before who, as we've talked to each other, say, I will admit to you one thing. They say, I don't want to live next door to an atheist. And the, and the concept there is living next door to a Christian has some benefits. You know that you're going to be treated with grace and, and kindness, or should be, if they call themselves Christian. So Constantine needed these people. He needed this to, to help. You know, so what does he do? He orders, bring in all the, the Christian leaders from all areas, get them in one place, and have them nail down the essentials of the faith once and for all. Well, regardless of his best efforts, he couldn't gather all or even most of them. Most historians say that there were about a thousand bishops in the Eastern Church, about 800 in the West. Um, if you're not familiar with those terms, the 800, let's say, would eventually be in the Roman Catholic Church when it formed. And the 1,000 bishops in the East would be in the Eastern Orthodox, or the Greek Orthodox, when it formed. It was, this is all still in flux. According to the records, however, only about 250 bishops attended the Council of Nicaea. Uh, if you add those that came and went, you could get up to about 300. So again, it was just a representative um, sample. They debated the issue, and they came down decisively on the side of Athanasius and the eternal divine nature of Jesus. It wasn't unanimous, but it was pretty close. There was one big fight that became physical, and some say it did not happen, but it's such an early record from some others. I'm just going to take it because it's a cool story. That St. Nicholas got so upset at Arius demoting Jesus that he punched him. And I like Santa with an edge. 
So believe it or not, I have chosen my lane, and I shall, I shall believe it. Only two bishops present at the Council of Nicaea uh, did not sign the Nicene Creed that has that expansion of what we believe about Jesus. Those who believe, by the way, that Constantine ruled the early church and made it decide what its beliefs were, they have some argument, but not much. In fact, he would have much preferred that they'd gone with Arius because his son preferred Arius. But when he saw what the majority said, he went with the majority. He just wanted them to make a story. It's, it's almost like, but kids, this doesn't happen ever, I'm sure, now. But back in the day, uh, whenever the kids would fight in the back seat, which was easier to do, wasn't it? Because there was no borders between you. You did not have individually molded seats back then. It was one slick bench. And you would slide back and forth anyway because you didn't have seat belts. And if they, your car came with seat belts, you just shoved them back down. In. And so, I, but anyway, and kids would fight. And dads would every now and then with one hand be driving and the other hand just back there swinging. It didn't matter who he hit as long as he hit somebody and got the attention of the crowd. That's Constantine. He's saying, just make up your mind. I don't care which way you go, make up your mind. And they went with what I believe absolutely to be the truth, and that is that Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are both co-eternal with God of the same essence, light from light. They are the same. So what happens next? Well, Constantine decided to ban those that wouldn't sign the creed uh, and those that agreed with Arius. So he did. But he also... He also banned any bishop that wouldn't condemn Arius. In other words, it wasn't enough that you agreed with the right thing. You also had to publicly denounce the other. Now, if that sounds a bit much, please remember that that's exactly what politicians and culture want you to do. That not only must you accept anybody's lifestyle or anybody's decision, you must be seen to approve it. And isn't that strange? It's also very illogical and very wrong, and I'm not going to do it, but I'm a contrarian. Make your own decision. So he had all copies of Arius's book burned that he could find. And his son, by the way, um, still remained an Arian Christian, and Constantine took no action against him. It's different when it's your kid. Perhaps because of his son, Constantine did something very wise. He began an immediate, he banned them, and then began an immediate process of rehabilitation and reconciliation. He even banned Athanasius for a while because Athanasius didn't seem to be so interested in reconciliation. This was just an excommunication party. That's what happens. Once you start excommunicating people, you get in the habit. Once you start judging others, you start getting good at it. Eleven years later, the Synod of Jerusalem officially asked Arius to re-enter into communion with the rest of the church. I find that to be a wonderful decision. However, tragically, Arius died on his way to the communion and never got to be officially reconciled with the rest. It took several more decades to eradicate Arianism, though it never really went away. Those who deny the Trinity today 
are generally called Arians, although they are, if you want to look it up later, they tend to be more Socinian, don't worry about that one, than Arian. They, they, there are groups that do. The main ones would have to be the Unitarians, which you don't hear an awful lot about, but they are still with us, the Unitarian Church. And the one much larger is the Jehovah's Witness. Jehovah's Witnesses believe, uh, and in fact, they are very firm on this and very insistent on this, that Jesus was created. He is not almighty God. He is God. And in fact, I've had them show me on, on my front porch because I don't let people in. I don't, and maybe I'm over-reading, but in the book of Second John, it says that if people don't bring the gospel of Christ with them, don't let them in your house, and so I don't, and it was cold, uh, and they were shivering, I bet, because this was in North Carolina, but I, I'm from Scotland, I'm, I'm cool with it, let's go, and so I'm standing there, they're a little shivering, and there's, they even showed me their books. And said, look, even in the, in the Bible, uh, when it refers to Jesus, it's a little g for God. And I'm going, all right, first of all, that's your translation. They said, no. And they went to the front and they had pictures of the old manuscripts. And they said, we, you know, in the old manuscripts, every time it referred to Jesus, it used a little g. And I said, several problems with this. Number one, little letters were not invented until well over 400 years after the manuscript you're showing me those are all capitals and they're looking at each other and I said and the second thing is um, if you want to argue off of those well let's let's do this discussion in Hebrew then and they looked and they said we can't do that and I said then don't flash these it's a bad move Jesus is a capital G God Jesus is equal with the Father Jesus is equal with the Holy Spirit I am um, I try not to be unkind, but it's offensive when somebody demotes your Savior. And we need to stand for Jesus because he died for us. Certainly we can stand for him. The apostles had just witnessed miracles, feeding large amounts of people with just a little food, opening the eyes of the blind, stopping storms. And after that, Jesus turned to them and asked, who do you say that I am? What about you? That's important. Simon Peter was the one who first answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That, um, that question, who do you say I am, that's the most important question you are ever going to answer in the rest of your life. It's more important than who takes this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife. It's more important than do you solemnly swear to uphold the Constitution. It's more important than any other thing you will ever say. The answer to the question, what do you think about Jesus? Who do you say that he is? Jesus, that Jesus question is still a valid one. Some people in the religious world have shamed believers by saying that Jesus gives sinners AIDS or he brings hurricanes against ungodly countries, judgment in the storm, as if Jesus were Baal or Ashtaroth rather than the Son of God. I'll never forget years ago when Disney World, hang on, Disney World, that's the, yeah, Disney World's one in Florida, right? I, I don't hang around the rat much, so I'm, I'm thinking I've got that right. Uh, that's, it's, you know, he's a six foot tall rodent, you know, uh, let's, and you're, you wonder why, where are my kids crying when I'm handing them to this? It's a six foot rodent. That's why 
anyway, uh, let's move on. And also, I've had to watch Disney Junior because I've, I've had grandkids, and that will kill your brain. That will absolutely shut down your brain. Anyway, Disney uh, World had started having official gay days uh, where they, uh, they, they reached out uh, to give them a you know, celebration time there and such. And Christians uh, started going a, l- a little nuts, didn't need to be doing this. And I'll never forget that Pat Robertson got on TV and said that uh, God would judge Florida for this and send hurricanes against it. And my thought is, hurricanes in Florida? Well, that's never happened before, so. <laughs> really? And if God sends AIDS to people back in the 80s, he had horrible aim because he didn't kill bad people, did he? He killed people who just needed a blood transfusion. And God didn't do that. Don't answer wrong for God. Whenever we ask who God is, God is love. And Jesus is his son. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of power who lives in us as a gift from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Some people think Jesus hates gay people, and of course he doesn't. Others think Jesus is a sweet, cuddly, bunny God. No, he can be pretty tough. Might want to ask Korah, who led a rebellion against Moses, saying, all right, we're taking over. And one of my favorite, although not for him, passages in the Old Testament, because God didn't even argue with the group. He just opened up the ground, they fell in, he shut it. Okay. I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things, where are we standing? We want to be in the right place. Who is Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? And if you say, he is my Lord, then the, how are, what, what's, what's the evidence? How can we see that Jesus is Lord? I get people that love me. Yeah, it happens. And, and every so often, one of them will say, Patrick, you know, shouldn't you slow down? Shouldn't you not travel and work as much and such? And my response is, it's not my decision. It's not like I chose this. I am a soldier under orders. I am compelled. And I know what Paul meant when he said, woe be unto me if I preach not the gospel. He would have exploded we have, a, we have a job to do. So we're going to do this slowly. And in two weeks, bring your notebooks or uh, those of you who are in the modern age, be prepared to take pictures of the slides. Because we are going to go to a lot of scriptures in the Old Testament and then in the New and show the essence of Jesus is discoverable in scripture if you pay attention. So we're going to do that. We're going to give you a wee bit of a hint to that today. Where it's, it's just important enough we need to have this nailed down in our heads and in our hearts. You know me. You know I believe there's a lot of room for variance of belief on so many things. But on this subject, I don't believe we have any room to maneuver. Who do you say Jesus is? Is Jesus Yahweh? Well, let's just compare a few as we close this today. And not as we close it to jump up on stage yet. I'll bring you up here in a bit. Psalm 23.1, the Lord. Now, I want, you to, I want you to watch that slide very carefully. Now, what's different about the word Lord? It's all capitals. 
You see that? Now that's a, that's a translator's signal. When you see that, it's a translator's signal that this is an occurrence of the Tetragrammaton, four consonants rammed together that we do not know how to pronounce. It's the name of God. The guess in most places is Yahweh, and I've got no quarrel with that guess at all. You have to plug in vowels, those, one, those work. But the J-H-V-H is the way we would do it, although there's technically not a J in Hebrew. And so it's four consonants put together. Pronunciation has been lost for many centuries uh, that because the, the Jews felt it was too holy to say. So the Lord means Jehovah, is what we used to say, Yahweh today. Is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Let's look at the next, next passage, Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the, now look at that word, Lord's hand, double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Now, I want you, please be aware, most time the word Lord appears in scripture, it is not all capitalized because it's referring to Adonai. It's referring to the word Lord. But when it's capitalized, it always means Yahweh. In the wilderness, prepare the way for Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord, Yahweh, will be revealed, for all people will see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken, a voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. And the grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of Yahweh blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See the sovereign Yahweh comes, comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See his reward is with him, his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock, we go right back to that theme, like a shepherd, he gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Now look in the New Testament. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by any other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. In the Old Testament, that's Yahweh. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listened to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them all out on his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they don't recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. 
They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. And then, Hebrews. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. And then 1 Peter chapter 2, 25. But you, let's bring up the group now, okay? But you are like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. And we're all just doing shepherd, but let's look at one more. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Jesus is the shepherd. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus has that same title. So would you stand as I read that section of the Nicene Creed again? And those who agree at the end say amen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. And they who agree say amen.